All right. Well, like I said earlier, uh, my wife and I and my family, we were out in Colorado two weeks ago. We were, we were not here, and um, we had the pleasure of spending some time in Colorado Springs. Um, now, if you have been in Colorado, you know what I mean when I say that the mountains are majestic, right? You understand the, the size of them, you get a scope of really how small you are in the, this world, and you, you see them as something grand and huge. And uh, it is something that I, I've been to the Rockies many times, and I am always amazed at the, just the, the size of them and the beauty of them. Now, Ashley and I, we were talking as we were there, we were talking about people that move maybe from Kansas or move from some other state, a nice flat land, into a place that has mountains like that, a place like the Rockies. And we, we wondered, how long does it take for somebody to move from maybe here to there to really see the mountains as just common as they're not really that important, they're just kind of there, and, and they seem to be something no more than just the road in front of you, maybe that you're driving. I also wonder about people that maybe have lived there their entire life, that they, they were born and raised there, and uh, they're, they're not really amazed anymore. Like, how does, it, does that happen? Is that true of them? Is it kind of like being born and raised here in Independence, and you realize, uh, you mean it only costs how much to ride that carousel, right? Like, you're not amazed at that anymore. Like, you've lived here long enough, and it's not amazing. Uh, but maybe moving here, at first, you're amazed that it only costs that much. And now that luster has worn off. Um, I wonder, as people that have maybe lived in that area, they are driving to work, maybe they look out their office window, and they see the mountains, are they amazed are they awestruck by what they see and what God has created? I don't know. I wonder if they just say, oh yeah, that's there. Oh yeah, those mountains. I think as Christians, we often do the same thing with church things, practices in the church. We've been around maybe long enough to have experienced all kinds of different things in the church, whether it be, you know, in, in prayer meetings or in baptisms or communion, as we will observe this morning. And those things that we maybe once saw as an amazing, majestic kind of thing, they've kind of all toned down. They're not really that impressive. They're not really that important anymore. They're just kind of commonplace to us. One particular thing I think this happens with is with the Lord's Supper specifically. And the more familiar we become with something, the, the more we have a tendency to treat it as though it doesn't really matter that much, and we take it for granted. Just because here at First Baptist we participate in the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the month, of every month, doesn't mean that we shouldn't treat it as something that's common, we should still treat it as something that has a massive impact to our life, and it does make a difference to our life. We shouldn't think of it in a, in a way of insignificance. Last week, some of you picked up the eight-day devotional guide that was offered uh, for you to prepare yourself for this morning. And maybe, hopefully, you've been using that, uh, you've been reading through that and using that very short time of devotion and prayer to really focus your heart and be ready for this morning. Maybe it's something different that, 
that you have practiced this past week. And maybe, maybe you sense a difference in your heart, maybe you, maybe you don't. Uh, it, is, it was my intention that that devotion would help break up the monotony of the week before the Lord's Supper and break up the monotony maybe that you have been experiencing in that, well, this moment of communion, this moment of the Lord's Supper, it's not as majestic as maybe it once was. And to refocus your heart, to refocus your mind, I think it can be a very real habit for us as we come to church month in, month out, the first Sunday of the month, and, and we have this mentality of, oh, Oh yeah, it is, it is Communion Sunday, isn't it? We don't really think much about the preparation beforehand. We, we don't come with a purposeful preparedness of this time that we celebrate together. And that has been the intention of this past week and, and that devotion for you this past week to try to encourage you in that direction. And not just to use it one week out of the year and be done with it, but to use it every month if it would help you. Be purposely prepared. We have given this morning um, a special intention and theme to the Lord's Supper in the focus that we have, not just to, to help us in our understanding and in our focus, but also for maybe future practices of this sacred rite. It is the elders' hope that we will all approach the Lord's Supper with a renewed sense of awe of reverence, of majesty to what we get to take part in this morning, giving us a new sense of excitement of what we get to participate in. So I would ask you to take your Bible, open up to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 17 through 34 this morning. There are three other recordings that we have in the New Testament about the Lord's Supper and, and the instruction given about the Lord's Supper by Jesus. Those are found in the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then we have this recording here in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul gives very explicit instructions to a specific church of how to practice this together of how should we think, how should we feel, what should we do when we practice this together. Now, in those three things in the Sopnic Gospels and this one here in Paul's letter to Corinth, uh, there is a lot of gray areas about the Lord's Supper and the practice of such things, but I think we do learn six, six things from this passage about what the Lord's Supper is. What is the Lord's Supper? Well, I want, to, I want to direct your attention to verses 17 through 22, first of all. I think we find the first thing of what is the Lord's Supper. The first thing we see is that it is a symbol of Christian unity. Look at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend to you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For, the fir- for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be reconciled, recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, 
I will not. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, uh, it was in a time where it was just before his death. It was just in a time where he was taken and then tried and executed. And in those moments just before he was taken, he was eating the Passover meal with his disciples. He, he told two of his disciples to go on into Jerusalem to find a certain individual that would lead them to a certain place to have this specific meal. And so this meal is called the Passover meal. It's something that happened every single year with the Jews. Now, if you remember the Passover meal, as it was being celebrated, it was a time of remembrance. It was a time to remember what God had done in bringing salvation to Israel by what he did back in Egypt. As he told them that, that the, the firstborn would die in all of the land unless the blood of a lamb was placed over the doorpost of the house. And it was in the placing of this blood of the doorpost that... The, the death angel of the Lord would pass over those houses, thus saving all who would be in the home. And so they celebrated every single year this salvation that was brought by God, and they celebrated it by a feasting of symbolic food and symbolic drink. So when Jesus is sitting down with his disciples in that upper room, they all thought, I would assume this is just an ordinary meal. This is an ordinary year, an ordinary thing that's happening. Even though it is special, even though it has significance and symbolism, I wonder how many of them really felt as though it was just a common thing to do of these men that were gathered around Jesus. But in the moment of their gathering, towards the end of the meal, what does Jesus do? He gives new meaning. He gives brand new meaning to this meal. Now, this is, this is pretty shocking, again, because this meal had been practiced for centuries the same way. But all of a sudden, Jesus says it now has new meaning, and it will have new meaning because of him. Jesus gives new meaning to the bread and to the cup during this meal, and this is why we term it the Lord's Supper, not because we are, we are partaking of elements this morning that are going to fill us up like we have had supper together. But in this moment of the Passover supper, they are now learning something new and be reminded of something new with Jesus. And so we term it the Lord's Supper, as well as communion. Now, when Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians here, chapter 11, notice what has been happening. Look at verse 17. He says that they would be better off not to meet than to keep on doing what they're doing. Now, now that's pretty strong, isn't it? It'd be better if you didn't meet at all, if you're going to keep on doing what you're doing. And so what was it that they were doing? Well, he, he tells them that he does not commend their practices, their practices of the Lord's Supper specifically, because they are robbing the meal of its meaning in symbolism. And one of the key aspects of the Lord's Supper is the unity that is in Jesus Christ as a church and in verse 18, he says that even though they were coming together, they are not really together. Yes, you've come together, but you're, you're not really together. There are divisions, there are factions, as he says in verse 19, in this church, and it is evident in how they have been treating the Lord's Supper. It shows itself in what they've been doing in their practice. So much so that he says in verse 20 that they are not eating the Lord's Supper. You think that you're eating it, but you're not. 
You've titled it this, but it's not that. Why? They've robbed it of its symbolism. The supper is to symbolize the unity that we share under the new covenant of Jesus Christ. It is the body and the blood of Jesus that makes the covenant possible. And there is no other covenant between God and man that could free us to have a true relationship with God. It is through Christ that we have this relationship. Now, in the chapter just before this, chapter 10, if you want to, maybe your Bible is right there. You can look back here. Verse 17 of chapter 10, Paul writes these words. He says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, he's giving them warnings about idolatry in chapter 10. He's dealing with issues that they have there. And actually, if you jump all the way back to chapter 7, he starts to write to them very specific things that they've been asking. And in chapter 10, he deals with another one of those things about idolatry and meat offered to idols and and how how should you think about that with your conscience. But he points to the fact that there is only one who can remove sin. And there is only one who must that we must partake in in order to be saved. Who is that one that we must partake in? Who is that one bread he's referring to? It is only Jesus Christ. There is only one bread. Now, one thing I would like us to consider this morning, something that, uh, again, maybe in just our tradition of things that we haven't really considered and how we take the elements of communion We have these small, as you'll get in just a moment, you'll get these small, uniform pieces of bread that are pre-broken and are individual. I would like to ask, ask the question this morning, does this best represent the oneness that we share in Jesus Christ? Or might one single loaf of bread demonstrate better the oneness that we have in Jesus If the supper is to symbolize the work of Jesus Christ and the unity that we have in Christ, are there things that we might need to change in order to better symbolize or demonstrate and show the true unity that we have in Christ? I think there might be. In verse 21, Paul tells them why they are not doing things the right way and how these factions and divisions, this disunity, how it's evident in the church. It's not because of the bread. It's not because of, of, of the little pieces of bread or the loaf of bread. It's, it's, it's not really the elements at all of what's happening. But he does point to something. He says, some eat without everyone else and others get nothing. Now we need a little historical context for us to really, really feel the, the weight of what Paul is dealing with here with this church at Corinth. Corinth was a very wealthy area. It was a a place that was pretty affluent. And the church in Corinth likely had very wealthy people that were included in the congregation. And and this church would also be made up of blue-collar workers and also likely slaves because most of the early church was made up of slaves, especially the church in Rome, as I think most of Rome, about 60% plus, uh, were slaves in the city of Rome. So what Paul is addressing is more... The, the more affluent people of the church, as they would arrive first, beating everyone else there, because when they met, it wasn't necessarily uh, maybe on a, on a Sunday, and Sundays were even considered work days at that time. And so people would show up uh, before everyone else, and these would be the more affluent people. 
they would show up at the place that was designated as the meeting place, the gathering place of the church. And they would probably show up with fine food, fine wine, and, and they would feast and they would drink together, having their own little party. And then later on, the blue-collar workers would show up after they've clocked out, and, and they would show up likely maybe with that, that quick uh, bread that they made at home and maybe, maybe some drink with them they would bring, but it would not be to the level uh, that the affluent group would have. And then the last group that would show up, and probably much later that would show up, would be the slaves. And the slaves would, would roll in probably very late compared to the first group, and they would show up with probably nothing, or maybe something that's very insignificant to really the whole that is there, or what has already been brought. And by the time that the slaves would show up to the meeting, there would be really nothing left for them to partake of. The meal was no meal at all for them. And this is what angered Paul about what was happening in the church. They were using the title of the Lord's Supper, but they had lost sight of the symbolism of the Lord's Supper. They were not honoring God because they were not honoring each other. He says in verse 22, to despise the Lord's Supper is to despise the church. If you despise each other, you're despising the supper. The supper is meant to symbolize the unity, the solidarity, the, the commitment that we have towards Jesus Christ and also towards each other. So please keep in mind that the unity in the local church is Paul's focus as he writes these words to the church at Corinth. He is focusing his instructions to this church to deal with the unity of this church. And where does unity in Jesus Christ best get expressed? It best gets expressed in local congregations who demonstrate their unity together under the covenant of Jesus Christ. So I think this is the first of the things in which Paul is addressing of what is the Lord's Supper. A second thing is in the next verses, 23 through 25, which are the most familiar verses to us in this chapter it is the, the reciting of Jesus' words. And so the second thing that I think the Lord's Supper is, according to Paul here, is a time of remembrance. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. When a church serves the Lord's Supper, they're serving more than bread and juice or wine in some context. They're also serving in the moment of distributing the elements. They're serving a remembrance. When Jesus instituted this practice, with his disciples, he commanded them something, right? What did he command them? To remember. He's telling them to remember. If you remember throughout the Old Testament, God told his people to remember a lot of things, right? He had them remember all kinds of things. And when he wanted them to remember something very important, he gave them some sort of tangible, practical thing that would help them be reminded of what God was trying to communicate to them. The Passover meal is, is one of those examples. 
I mean, these disciples and Jesus, they go up to the upper room to exercise a remembrance. Other things that we see through the Old Testament are things like Ebenezer stones. I don't mean Ebenezer Scrooge. That's completely different. But Ebenezer stones are stones of remembrance or festivals and feasts that God would tell them, practice these things. Even the sacrifices were there to remind them of what they needed to understand about God. It is almost like God knows how easily we forget and how tangible, real-life things can help us be reminded. Let me ask you, what is your favorite, we're approaching the holidays, what is your favorite holiday meal or holiday treat? Get that in your mind, okay? Think about that for about 10 seconds, all right? Because if you think too long, I will lose you. What is your favorite holiday food or holiday treat? What is the smell of it? What is the taste of it? Now, right now, you are probably having happy thoughts. You're probably enjoying in your mind, oh, I can't wait to get my hands on some of, right? And you're thinking, oh, man, I'm, I'm ready for Thanksgiving, or I'm ready for Christmas, or or whatever other holiday you're going to celebrate. Uh, I think yesterday was National Tsunami Awareness Day. Um, so <clears throat> into, the, into the things that you want to remember through eating of those things, your, your mind is opened up to joy, isn't it? Your memories, they're refreshed as you just think about that. But what if I could just put that right in front of you right now and you could take a bite of it? To what level would your joy be refreshed? To what level would your mind be reminded of how good that really is? This is why we have these elements this morning. It is to remind you of the goodness of God. It is to make your joy refreshed into what Jesus has accomplished for you personally. We are to remember what has been accomplished on the cross and through the grave. And in verse 23, Jesus took bread and broke it. He said, this is my body. It's broken for you. In verse 24, he, he, he points this out. He says, this, this is for you. Now, if we go all the way back to John chapter 6, Jesus is talking about himself being the bread that comes from heaven. Not in reference to the Lord's Supper. He's not dealing with that in this moment in John chapter 6, but he's telling uh, the people around him at that time that they must eat of him or they will not have eternal life. In John 6, Jesus is not talking about his literal body. He is not promoting cannibalism, as some actually thought he was, and some even think that today with how they practice communion. And even though these people at the time thought that he was meaning something literal, he was actually pointing to something metaphorical. He was speaking about his death and his body that is required for them. In his physical death, there's also something spiritual that happens. The great mystery of God's forgiveness towards sinners by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. He is the perfect one that gave his life for you. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So when 
so we can tell from these words that he's speaking of something supernatural, he's speaking of something spiritual, but he's speaking about himself. He then goes on verse 47 of that same chapter to say that if someone believes, they will have eternal life. And then in verse 48, he repeats this idea of that he is the bread of life. You must eat of the bread of life. Now the question I asked was, why bread? I prefer steak. Why would he use bread as the example in John 6, but also here in 1 Corinthians 11? Why is he saying, here's my body, it's broken for you. Why not something else? Well, bread during this time period, in this place, it was the staple diet for the people. This is what everyone could eat. It was cheap, it was inexpensive, and even today it's cheap, it's inexpensive, it's accessible by most places in the world. When we say that something is a staple in our diet, what are we saying? We're saying it's a foundation, right? It's part of the foundation to our regular diet. This is what Jesus' death is for us. It is the foundation in which everything else is built. If he did not die for you, you have nothing. If he did not die in your place, you have no salvation. If he did not rise from the grave, you have no hope of salvation or resurrection. If he did not take your sins upon himself, if he did not rise from the grave, defeating death, then what hope do you have? You are still in your sins and you're still guilty before a holy and just God. He is the bread that you must partake of. And praise be to God that he did die and he did rise again for you. So the supper is to help us remember what has been accomplished. Accomplished in the past by the breaking of his body and the giving of his blood. It is it's represented by these elements that we will partake of in just a moment together. But our time of remembrance it is not simply limited to remembering the past. It is also to serve the purpose of remembering something in the future. And this leads us to the third thing I think we have here in verse 26. The Lord's Supper is to lead to an anticipation of the future. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. There's a promise there, isn't there? This verse tells us that we are to keep practicing this remembrance, this symbolic supper together, to remind us that there's a certain moment coming when we will not need this supper anymore. It is a temporary thing that, that Jesus has instituted, and in the moment of His revelation to us that we see Him physically, there's no need. No need any longer to practice this remembrance because we will be with Him forever and we will never need another reminder. He will be the reminder. So not only do we remember what Jesus has done in the past by taking these elements this morning, but we also remember the promises of the future. The future that we will have with Him with, in all of eternity. The anticipation that we have is proclaimed every single time that we partake of this meal together. It's not just remembering what he did in the past, but it's remembering what is coming. What is our hope? 
when we eat the bread and we drink of the cup, we say to each other and with each other that we have a hope in Jesus Christ. When you partake of those elements together, as we practice here, not individually, but together we, we do this, it is saying we have hope. We have a hope in Christ. And this is one of the verses and the reasons why only believers in Jesus Christ should take part in this observance. They are proclaiming that they believe this and they trust this to be true. They trust in the promises of Jesus. And this is why they partake of it. Saying, we have a hope for the future. We remember the past. How can an unbeliever do such a thing? Well, they can't. Hence why they're called unbelievers. Now, other verses would also indicate or also point to uh, that would identify this is verses 24 and 25, speaking about the body which is for you and the blood is a new covenant. A new covenant has to be set between two parties. And who makes up that other party? If Jesus is one, God is one, then who is the other? There's individuals brought into that. And if an unbeliever is not a new, in a new covenantial relationship with Jesus, then they do not have any reason to partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper. And as Baptists, we have historically believed that the Lord's Supper is only for believers. And this leads to, I think, a fourth point that we find in verses 27 through 29. And we see that the Lord's Supper is a time of examination. Look at 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. The church at Corinth was treating the Lord's Supper as a social hangout, and that they would have their little social cliques that would happen and form and, and take place beforehand, and, and it, was, it was not a beautiful symbol of Christian unity. It was a symbol of selfishness and greed. There was no self-examination, both morally in this church or spiritually, as evidenced by previous chapters in 1 Corinthians. Go ahead and read those, those previous 10 chapters, and you see all of that that is there and this time of remembrance should also serve as a time of self-evaluation. As we remember, we should also self-evaluate, just like what Paul is addressing here. He, he's pushing on that. When Paul says, whoever eats or drinks in an unworthy manner, he would obviously be including unbelievers in that category, but he would also be speaking to another group of people. And who is it that Paul is specifically speaking to in 1 Corinthians? Church people. He's telling Christians that you can approach in an unworthy manner. People were approaching the Lord's table with flippancy. It's common. The awe, the majesty of it, it's gone. Oh yeah, it's the first Sunday of the month. This is what an unworthy manner means. Not meaning that you have to be worth, worthy to take part in the supper. Because if that was the case, then who could partake of the supper? Who would be worthy to take part in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect one? Who would be worthy of that? 
none are worthy. All have fallen short. So it's not a matter of worthiness that Paul is addressing, but it is a matter of one's manner of approach. How are you approaching this moment? How are you approaching the table? What is the posture of your heart when you partake of these elements and you do it together? Is there sin in your life that is unconfessed? Is there sin in your life that's unrepented of before God? Now, I'm not asking you if you're perfectly righteous. You're not. There's only one that is perfectly righteous, that is Jesus Christ. I'm not asking, are you unstained by the sin that has been in your life before you come to the table? That's not what I'm asking. That's not what Paul is asking. What I am asking is if you are being honest with yourself and with the Lord about the direction and the lifestyle of your life. This meal was given to sinners. And it was given... Four sinners. But those sinners, those sinners must humble themselves before the Lord. They must be honest about their need for Jesus' righteousness being applied to them. Do you need to be purged of every last sin before you come to the table? Does your, does your, your conscience and your mind completely need to be uh, purged of all of those things before you come to the table? No, because you would never come. You would never be able to come to the table. Another way that someone might be taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner is to, to treat the supper like it's some sort of magical formula where in your mind you think that all that you need to do to be absolved from your sin is to to eat of the bread, to drink of the cup, and then you will be sin-free, at least for a little while. Paul would say to this person, they are doing this in an unworthy manner. The supper does not take away your sins. What or who takes away your sin? Only Jesus Christ. He is only the one that does that. The supper is to remind you that Jesus has forgiven you. You have been forgiven, Christian. Romans 8, 1 applies to you. And you should be pursuing holiness because of the oneness that you have with Him. Because you're partaking of the one bread. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are symbolizing our continuation of the Christian life. When we partake every month, as we do here, we should be reminded that our pursuit of life should be in a righteous direction, a holy direction, not like the world, not pursuing things of the world, which means that if, you're, uh, if our lifestyle is in a contradiction to the Christian life, then you're likely approaching the table with an unworthy manner and heart. I think this serves as also a good spot here to address the question that people have of, well, who should partake in this ceremony? Who should be ones that partake in this? I think there are three prerequisites that we find in Scripture. The first is the easiest one, believers. Believers should be the ones. I've already addressed this, and so I'm going to move right on into the second one. The second prerequisite I think is there is those that have been baptized. 
Now, baptism is the first act of obedience when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ. When someone is baptized, they are symbolizing the death of the old self and the new life that they have in Christ. So they're symbolizing the regeneration or the being born again moment that has taken place in their life. And virtually all denominations have viewed baptism as a prerequisite to participation in the Lord's Supper. Now, there are some obvious differences uh, into the understanding and practice of baptism amongst denominations. That is quite obvious, and it's why we have the name Baptist in our name as a denomination. And so, we would say that legitimate baptism is practiced after someone has been born again or regenerated. We would say that is only when someone should be baptized, after that moment. And so, they shouldn't partake of the Lord's Supper before that moment. Now, a third thing that shows up is church members. There's a link in the New Testament between the Lord's Supper and the church. Now, once a person is regenerated by the Holy Spirit, once they have been baptized as a first act of that obedience in Christ, then it seems to be that the New Testament is giving direction in connecting baptism and membership into a church. Now, baptism initiates someone into the capital C or universal church. That, that is one of those things. But that, that uh, initiation is demonstrated most practically by a person being joined with a physical location, with physical real people. Not just spiritual or, or out there detached from other things. Now, in the Catholic and in the Lutheran traditions, church membership is a prerequisite to taking the Lord's Supper. Both of them have very different views of the Lord's Supper and baptism than we do, but also through, uh, uh, through the denominations, we also see that the Reformed traditions, that this is required. But in Reformed traditions, there does not have to be a doctrinal agreement, which means that they would allow members of other churches to participate in the celebration of the table with them. Baptists have some varying positions on this, but most through church history have seen the necessity for baptism and church membership for there to be participation in the Lord's Supper. The Southern Baptist Statement of Faith, titled The Baptist Faith and Message, points to the proper participation in the Lord's Supper, belonging to members of the church. Now, a person's membership to a local church is where real fellowship happens, real accountability happens, and encouragement can really thrive. It is also a place in which discipline can be exercised if needed, which leads to a sub-point about who should participate in the Lord's Supper 2.3, which is church members in good standing. If a member of the church is placed under church discipline because their life seems to be giving evidence that they're not a believer because there is not repentance in their life and they're not turning back to righteousness and holiness, then they would not be in good standing with the church. And the word excommunication is used when someone is put outside of the church and deemed by that church as an individual who is demonstrating a lifestyle not consistent with the Christian life. 
Now, excommunion, which is where excommunication comes from, means that they should not participate in the Lord's communion. So who should take communion? Well, one who has been born again by the saving work of Jesus Christ, who has been baptized as a believer, and who is in good standing with the church they belong to. I think these are the three prerequisites that we find in the New Testament. Now, there's, let me go back to my six points. Number five, the fifth thing that we think, that I think we see here about what the Lord's Supper is, is in verses 30 through 32. And what we find is that the Lord's Supper is possibly dangerous. Possibly dangerous. Look at verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. If we fail to self-examine and fail to approach the table with a right reverence, Paul is saying there are serious consequences to that. He's pointing out to this church in Corinth, there are serious consequences, and you're experiencing those consequences because of your attitude, because of what you've been practicing and doing. Paul tells them to take note. Take note to what God has been saying to them, but they have not been listening. He's pointed this out to them by their sickness, and even to the fact that some have even died in the church. And there's a lack. There's a lack of respect for each other and for the Lord, and the Lord disciplines them because of it. So let's be aware this morning. Let us be aware, as maybe we have those among us that are sick or ill or even death has happened among us. Do we have some of these same symptoms of the church at Corinth? Well, what are they? Well, they were selfish, they were prejudiced, they were divisive, they were drunkards, they neglected the needs of each other, and they were greedy. They were also tolerating other sins in the congregation. You can go back to chapter 5 if you would like to read about what kind of things they were tolerating in that church. And listen, Jesus is serious about his body. He is serious about his body being healthy. And if something needs fixed in it, he will fix it. It will be purged so that the body can get better and be more effective. So let this verse, let these verses sink in as a warning to us as we participate and partake this morning in this observance and how this observance can be personally and congregationally dangerous if we proceed without dealing with what we need to deal with. It can be possibly dangerous for us. The sixth, the final thing out of this chapter, verses 33 and 34, I think we see that the, uh, the Lord's Supper is a time to exercise patience and generosity. Look at verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment, but other things I will give directions when I come. Well, 34 ends with some bad news, like Paul's coming, right? And Peter knows you don't want Paul in your face, right? So you better get things right. You better address some of these things. And what do they need to address? They need to address their exercise of patience and of generosity to each other. 
Paul's final instructions to this church about the Lord's Supper is the need that they have to practice patience with each other and not just on this one day of the week or, or maybe every time that they're meeting, not just practice it then, but all of the time they need to practice this. And they also need to practice generosity with each other. Not just like we do on the first Sunday of the month that you're, you're kind of generous to each other no, at all times, in all ways, being generous and patient with each other. The supper that we are about to partake of, it is symbolizing what? Our unity to Christ and to each other. Our behaviors and our attitudes of patience and generosity towards each other shows that the symbol of unity is not merely a symbol. It's not just Something that's out there, and we're like, oh, see, we did it. There it was. See the symbol? But it's representation of the reality of the church. This is what it should be. We should be generous. We should be patient with each other because we are united together. It is my hope, it has been my prayer, that we would be ready for this moment, that we would not partake in this moment in a way that is unworthy. We would not take this moment for granted. We would be prepared. I'm going to ask you, are you prepared? Are you ready? I'm going to ask the deacons to go ahead and come to prepare the elements for us. And I would ask you to spend just a few moments where you are in reflection and prayer about what the Lord's Supper is, what Christ has done for you, Christian, what he's given for you in his body and his blood. Be reminded of what he did in the past, but what's promised to you in the future. Christian, would you spend a few moments in reflection?